The famous American painter Thomas Hart Benton, the subject of this evening's lecture, was named for his illustrious ancestor, Thomas Hart Benton, who was a U.S. Senator from the state of Missouri. The greatest artistic tribute to the elder Thomas Hart Benton is a monumental bronze statue by the American sculptor Harriet Hosmer, which, as it turns out, stands and has stood since 1869 in the city of St. Louis's, you guessed it, Lafayette Park. So Lafayette is always with us. And that brings us to this evening's speaker. Austin Baron Bailey is the George Putnam Curator of American Art at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem, Massachusetts. Before coming to Salem, Dr. Bailey was on the curatorial staff of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and then for 11 years served as the Associate Curator of American Art at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art in California. A native of New Orleans, Dr. Bailey took an undergraduate degree at Vassar College, earned her MA from Williams College, and completed her PhD in art history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her dissertation, Painting the American Historical Epic, comprised the first thorough examination of Thomas Hart Benton's American Historic Epic murals. Subsequently, she has lectured on Benton at the Huntington Library and Museum, Indiana University, the Art Institute of Chicago, and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Her work on Benton has culminated with her as lead curator for American Epics, Thomas Hart Benton and Hollywood, the visually stunning and fascinating exhibition that remains on view at the Peabody Essex Museum through September 7th. Dr. Bailey's current projects also include American Impressionist, Child Hassam and the Isles of Shoals, and Samuel F. B. Morris's Gallery of the Louvre and the Art of Invention. Tonight, however, Dr. Bailey will keep us on the Benton Trail with her topic, Thomas Hart Benton and the Modern American Woman. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Austin Baron Bailey. Good evening. Thank you all so much for being here. It is my great pleasure to talk with you tonight about Thomas Hart Benton and the modern American woman. As you know, this lecture series um, is geared towards exploring the role of women in the arts. And when David kindly extended the invitation, I said, well, I'm not really working on any women artists, but I could definitely talk about women in Benton. So I am looking forward to that. And here he is, I'll just, um, with some unidentified female companions in 1912, fresh back from Paris, before it all begins. So I wanted to start tonight with this extraordinary painting from about 1924, Thomas Hart Benton's self-portrait with Rita. Um, and if you have seen the exhibition, uh, you will know that it kicks off that show as well as this lecture. In this canvas, Benton deliberately blurred the boundaries between art history and Hollywood. Towering above the sea, his hand on a staff and his head in the clouds, Benton could be a character from a 16th century Italian painting, perhaps the sea god Neptune. But he also could be a handsome movie star like Douglas Fairbanks. Benton imagines himself in the guise of such a modern god, posing glamorously on a Martha's Vineyard beach. 
and by his side is his beautiful co-star, his wife, Rita. This painting not only signals Benton's tremendous artistic confidence and ambition at this point in his career, but also the vital roles women played in his art. By the mid-1920s, Benton was innovatively melding old master European painting traditions with Hollywood's cinematic and production techniques to create his signature cinematic style. What inspired him? Born in Neosho, Missouri in 1889, Benton was the son of a five-term U.S. congressman and the namesake of his great-great-uncle, Senator Thomas Hart Benton, Missouri's first senator from 1821 to 1851. Born, uh, sorry, the senator's son-in-law was John Charles Fremont, a great explorer of the American West who was called the Pathfinder. Now, Benton himself had trained, had not gone into politics and law, and had trained at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago and studied independently in Paris between 1908 and 1911. When he moved to New York in 1912, he dropped right into the vanguard modern art community in New York. But he had yet to make the kind of defining contribution to the art history of the United States that his forebears had made to American political history. Benton desperately wanted to make such a contribution and to be known as the major American artist of his day. Casting about for work and opportunities, the ambitious painter looked to Fort Lee, New Jersey, the first Hollywood. Between 1913 and 1917, Benton painted sets and assisted leading directors like Rex Ingram in the silent film studios at Fort Lee. He quickly saw the rising appeal of motion pictures. If epic themes such as cultural identity Westward expansion, race relations, and the American dream appeared on movie screens. Why not on canvas? Benton began charting a new artistic course to compete with the drama and power of movies. He set his sights on becoming a public artist, a painter of murals executed with an unforgettable brand of visual storytelling. His sweeping first mural project are these 14 mural panels, the American historical epic, painted between 1920 and 1928. This was a self-commissioned, or to use Hollywood lingo, independently produced project. <laughs> Benton never did find a patron, building, or an architect to build walls for these mural panels, but they are incredibly important. And through the project, he more than proved himself as a muralist and established the themes that would occupy him for the rest of his career. And soon he received the public commissions that made him famous, such as America Today, and I'll just show you one example in its original location, painted in 1930-31 and now at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The Arts of Life in America, painted for the Whitney Museum, and all the panels are now at the New Britain Museum of American Art in New Britain, Connecticut. A 250-foot-long mural cycle for the state of Indiana, completed in six months for the Indiana Pavilion at the 1933 Chicago World's Fair and now at Indiana University. And his 1936 mural cycle for the House Lounge of the Missouri State Capitol, A Social History of the State of Missouri. And this is a sort of circa 1950s movie lobby-looking <laughs> photograph. And then in 1934, he had landed on the cover of Time magazine, a first for an artist. The following year, 1935, when he left New York after more than 20 years to move to Kansas City and permanently relocate to his native Missouri, he was a national celebrity. By 1937, when Life magazine sent him on assignment to Hollywood to paint a movie mural and depict the movie industry, he was the most famous artist in America. His fame led him to receive numerous high Hollywood commissions between 1939 and 
1954 to promote movies produced by major studios and shot by leading directors, including 20th Century Fox and John Ford. But from the beginning, women were as essential to Benton's art as they are to traditions of art history and filmmaking with all the attendant complications from feminist perspectives. And women were integral to Benton's dreams of creating modern American epics, powerful stories portraying a nation's character. He cast ordinary American women as leading and supporting players in authentic American stories, elevated them to mythic realms, and even transformed them into goddesses. Take people of Chilmark, the life-size canvas that boldly signaled a totally new direction in his life as an American modernist. The work reveals Benton's interest in American people and their stories, as well as the emergence of his highly recognizable cinematic style. Here is a canvas that has the unmistakable look of canonical paintings from European art history, complete with complex Renaissance and mannerist compositional structures and chiaroscuro. But the painting is also startlingly American. Benton replaced history paintings nude, biblical, historical, or mythological figures with a montage of contemporary American men and women. These youthful, athletic bodies, most dressed in 1920s bathing costumes, are Benton's people, identifiable friends and neighbors from Chilmark, Massachusetts, a village, as probably many of you know, on the island of Martha's Vineyard. There, beginning in 1920, Benton spent every summer for the rest of his life. He died at age 85 in 1975. And in this painting, his close friend, the notorious American art critic Thomas Craven, is visible on the left wearing the lavender shirt, and Benton's wife posed for many of the female figures. Benton had asked himself, history painting, religious or secular, had occupied a large place in the annals of art. Why not look into it again? Benton emulated riveting paintings from the past, which provided the kinds of awe-inspiring experiences movies were now providing, and he imagined ordinary Americans occupying these mythical realms. Old master painters like Jacopo Tintoretto had relied on models to help them create complicated multi-figure paintings, such as this Last Supper from 1594. They cast candlelight on tiny sculpted wax models to study the composition of the forms. Scholar Jake Ween discovered that in the groundbreaking 1915 book, The Art of the Moving Picture, author Vachel Lindsay recommended to film directors that they use Tintoretto's models to work out methods to work out scenes. You can see an example here of one from the 30s. Benton adapted, adopted these same modeling techniques around 1919. He began sculpting clay models and lighting them as compositional studies for his own paintings. Using these techniques, Benton rapidly achieved a memorable cinematic painting style that captured qualities intrinsic to motion pictures, the illusion of three-dimensional space, the glow of projected light, and the flow of rhythmic motion. Benton had found himself as an artist with these artistic ideas and achievements. And as he recorded in his 1937 autobiography, An Artist in America, quote, in my post-war period of renewed confidence, I got married. In 1917, Benton had met Rita Piacenza. He'd gotten a job as the gallery director for the Chelsea Neighborhood Association and taught free art classes at night in the neighborhood public schools. Piacenza was one of his students. Benton wrote in his autobiography, quote, she was slim, dark-eyed, and beautiful. 
She wore a red hat and was disposed to be friendly. We commenced going around together. I never had any money. For my salary with the Chelsea Art Association barely paid for my rent, paint, and food, and my new girl had to settle all of our entertainment bills. She didn't mind, and as I had long ago lost any chivalrous ideas about the proper economic relations of males and females, we got along. I had no false pride to bother me. Rita was an Italian, a Lombardian. Her people spoke no English. They were married in 1922. It was Piacenza who had encouraged Benton to get out of the city and go for the first time to the island of Martha's Vineyard, where she was renting a room in a Chilmark home. As Benton recorded, a year or so before we got married, my wife and I made summer trips to Martha's Vineyard. We would continue to go there, and every spring would leave our New York apartment and stay away until autumn. We lived in a made-over barn, which was covered with roses and looked over Vineyard Sound. It was in Martha's Vineyard that I really began to mature in my paintings, to get a grip on my emerging style and way of doing things. Martha's Vineyard had a profound effect on me. And here they are in the 1920s. The relaxing sea air, the hot sand on the beaches where we loafed naked, the great and continuous drone of the surf broke down most of the tenseness which life in the cities had given me and put a physical sanity into my life for four months of the year. It put me in a psychological condition to face America. It was in Martha's Vineyard that I first really began my intimate study of the American environment and its people. Thanks to his wife, Rita, and that first summer on the vineyard, Benton completed Discovery in 1920, the first panel of his epic mural series. Benton gained the courage to, in his words, set out painting American histories in defiance of all the conventions of the art world. Originally to subtitled Symbolical History of the United States, Discovery shows the arrival of European explorers from a Native American's perspective. To Benton, America's contested discovery symbolized how the national story really began. But Benton did not cater to the public with popular versions of American his heroes and historical narratives. He countered conventional expressions of female figures in American mural decoration, particularly as allegorical personifications of treasured ideals of liberty, Columbia, or justice. Instead, he explored the European discovery and settlement of this continent, wars with Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans, religion, and westward expansion. Through invented scenes and exaggerated figures, he recast myths of the frontier, freedom, and progress. Benton depicted the inequality and violence in the American story while revealing the important contributions of ordinary men and women. In some ways, his ambitions paralleled those of silent film directors to tell compelling stories through clearly defined dramatic episodes and technical and stylistic innovation. He responded frankly to the political environment of the 1920s, when the country fiercely debated who could be a true American and who could exercise the rights of full citizenship. As he portrayed the past, Benton grappled with urgent issues of the present, including the role of women in American society. I want to turn now to a close analysis and interpretation of the major female figures in Benton's American historical epic because his choice of female subject matter reveals his efforts to relate episodes from American history with specific ties to New England to complicated gender issues of the 1920s. It is important to observe that all of the early American men and women, black, white, and Indian, are depicted with relatively equal significance in the epic. This is demonstrated throughout the series by formal pairings, parallels, and mirroring of the figures that establish visual and rhetorical connections between them. 
Benton employed visual mirror, mirroring and paralleling to level historical experience. In one sense, his visual strategies critically suggest the interconnectedness of colonial American actions of both men and women. Benton's portrayals of their bodies and histories suggest a contested notion of an American body, both in a visual and a political sense. The subject matter and imagery underscore the identity questions, including Benton's and America's own artistic identity marking the era. This was a period bracketed by the release of D.W. Griffith's racist epic motion picture of 1915, Birth of a Nation, the 1924 enactment of the Immigration Act or National Origins Act, which drastically aimed to arrest the nation's changing demography due to immigration, and the Indian Citizenship Act, which finally granted all American Indian citizenship in 1924. The intervening years were fractious ones defined by influential events, such as municipal and federal Americanization efforts carried out in New York around World War I, just when Benton was working in Manhattan's Chelsea neighborhood community organizations with these immigrants. There was widespread disenfranchisement and violent race riots during the summer of 1919, erupting nationwide as Benton conceived his epic. The proposal of the 19th Amendment giving women the right to vote took place that summer, the ratification of the 19th Amendment in August 1920 finally guaranteed women's suffrage. And from left to right, the titles of these are Discovery, The Palisades, Aggression, Prayer, and Retribution. This is the first chapter completed between 1920 and 1925 of his epic. In this chapter, Benton suggested the historical presence of women in early America and their fundamental role in helping to settle and expand the colonies. Nevertheless, not a single female face in these first panels is fully visible, suggesting their political invisibility in the society that was then taking shape. And Benton alluded to the impending violent consequences of women's challenge to that invisibility in the fifth panel of the section, Retribution. In Retribution, Benton composed a succession of vertical details to underscore the violence, beginning at the top with the levitating Indian's brandished arm raised to strike with his war club. The eye follows the gestures down to the covered face of the terrified woman, her face framed by a clawed Indian hand. At the bottom is her naked child trying to hide in her lap. The waterway, burning home, and terrified child directly suggests the history of English colonist Anne Hutchinson, who was banished in 1637 by the Puritans from Massachusetts for her religious beliefs, which clashed with those of the established male Puritan clergy. In 1922, a bronze memorial to Anne Hutchinson sculpted by Cyrus Dallin was unveiled at the Boston State House, where it still stands today. In celebration of women receiving the, the right to vote, the Anne Hutchinson Memorial Association and the State Federation of Women's Clubs in Massachusetts had commissioned the statue in 1920. The memorial's inscription reads, in memory of Anne Marbury Hutchinson, baptized at Alfred Lincolnshire, England, 20th of July, 1595. Sick, I think that was supposed to be 1695. Um, killed by the Indians at East Chester, New York, 1643, courageous exponent of civil liberty and religious toleration. A, contemporary note, a contemporaneous notice in the New York Times sought to trump Boston's tribute and revealed associations closer to home from the New York-based Benton. 
Quote, though Boston is only now unveiling a statue as a memorial to Anne Hutchinson, whose advocacy of women's rights caused her expulsion from the Massachusetts Bay Colony, New York City long ago gave her name to one of its rivers. Only a week or so ago, a new bridge to carry the Boston Post Road across Hutchinson's River was dedicated. Boston most, uh, Benton most likely saw the contemporary relevance of the subject matter for his, his epic, which portended the dangerous consequences of excluding or violently oppressing members of American society, whether Native Americans, African Americans, immigrants, or women. Yet at a moment when Hutchinson was being celebrated for her advocacy of women's rights, Benton conversely fixated on the initial futility of her efforts to promote tolerance and the modern-day inheritance of the connections in American society between intolerance and violence. The indeterminacy to Benton, not to suffragettes, of Hutchinson's story as emblematic of women's sacrifices to achieve civil rights emerges in his inconsistent representations of women in the second chapter of the epic. This is clearing the land from left to right, planting the slaves and the witch. In these panels, a small female figure is visible feeding chickens in the background of planting. Frighteningly vulnerable African Americans, including naked black women, are brutalized in the slaves. And a female accuser who looks like a man sentences a witch. Benton's formal inventions for the figures in the Merle series emerge from the difficulties encountered in trying to express, even reconcile, popular and racialized American content and its attendant racist and stereotypical conventions like naked, primitive, African and Native Americans with elevated European art historical genres in their con conventions like mural and history painting, and especially the nude, the apogee of Western classical representation. In the epic, Benton almost entirely avoids the full nude. However, many of Benton's figures are minimal, minimally clothed, and certain figures stereotypically signify as nude. The three figures in the entire series who are, in fact, wearing no clothes are the two black women and the black child in The Slaves. It is ideologically significant that these figures are naked. White women are never shown in any state of undress. This peculiar spectrum of women is abandoned in the third chapter, where only one diminutive female figure with her head and back to the viewer appears as a pioneer woman in the receding wagon in the background of Over the Mountain. And from left to right, it's the Pathfinder, Over the Mountain, the Jesuits, Struggle for the Wilderness, and Lost Hunting Ground. But to go back to the second chapter, the witch is the final panel of the second chapter, a position similar to retribution, the female-associated religion-induced violence, which was the final panel of the first chapter. The witch summoned the barbarism, not surprisingly, of the 1692 Salem witch trials. In another instance of cultural relevance, the American composer Charles Wakefield Cadman's new opera, A Witch of Salem, premiered in 1926 when Benton painted the witch. One review reported that the, his prolific librettist, Nellie Richmond Eberhardt, had wisely chosen for her drama a period of American history long since mellowed by the glamour of romance and legend. The sense of drama is laid in the village of Old Salem during that period of hysteria and tolerance, which is not unakin to certain manifestations of life in America today. And that's a contemporary New York Times review. The hysteria and tolerance Hysteria and intolerance is conveyed in Benton scenes through the imminent execution by hanging of a young woman accused. She kneels in prayer at the center of an encroaching and intimidating circle of men. 
A monumental female figure at right dominates the scene, but her feminine attributes, her hair in a bun, long white dress and breasts, are mocked by the extremely masculine appearance of her muscular body, and especially her face with its large features and dark, heavy brow. Compounded by the manly, stern expression on her face, her countenance is utterly scornful. Her right arm appears to have just swept across her breasts in a dramatic, emphatic gesture as if admonishing sin. Dangling from her left fingers is a heavy, black, bound book, presumably the Bible. The androgyny of the dominant female and the bristling sexual energy elicited by the figural grouping around the accused suggests not hanging, for there is, in fact, no noose, but an atmosphere of rape. This aggressively gendered composition corresponds with the attack Benton's generation sought to make on the lingering cultural power of the so-called Victorian matriarch, who through religious and social activities commanded considerable influence. Women through the early decades of the 20th century had little political or economic power, but through their social roles often wielded substantial cultural authority. This did not erode after the First World War. The overpowering, defeminized accuser and highly feminized witch in this mural panel should be understood as Benton's modernist attempt to deflate such cultural power. Scholar Ann Douglas associates that cultural power with, quote, notions of middle-class piety, racial superiority, and sexual repression. The analogous discrediting in Benton's imagery of these puritanical social mores closely closely associated with American character and culture was a fundamental marker of modernity in his era. Benton's epic panels appear to expose the hypocrisy of the religious fervor that led to Anne Hutchinson's banishment and eventual demise or gave rise to the frenzied witch trials and to condemn puritanical intolerance and violence. On the other hand, the witch chauvinistically implies that women were responsible for moral and sexual repression and that such violence against women doled out by a hideous and, in fact, man-like woman might be some kind of retribution. These varying and oddly stereotypical representations of women are extremely erratic and conflicted. Consider as well the fact that Benton suppressed the one panel in the epic that would have featured women independently at work in a colonial domestic role as spinners. Its subject matter relates to Benton's recuperation of colonial themes in the second chapter. Benton would have had many conceptual reasons to try out the spinning theme as the central panel in this chapter, representing motifs associated with Americana. Spinning was a favorite subject during the colonial revival heyday between 1880 and 1940. It was central to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's wildly popular The Courtship of Miles Standish from 1858, and American artists took up the subject, especially Thomas Aikens. Aikens picked up from Longfellow in depicting a suitor and a young woman at her spinning wheel in the courtship of 1878. He painted women spinning on at least seven occasions between 1876 and 1881. Two of these scenes, um, the spinner from 1878 and and spinning on the right, 1881, uh, were shown in his memorial exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 1917, where Benton could have seen them. The spinning wheel in the 1881 work bears a close resemblance in form and position to the one in Benton's panel. 
The spinners could have been the third panel of chapter two of the epic, the barren hills aligned with the contours of the hills and planting in the sleeves. The burnt orange color of the standing woman's dress chromatically anchors the five panels. There's even a menacing visual connection between the diagonally oriented rectangle plank of the spinning wheel and the parallel placed plank in the next panel, the slaves. But exhibition records show Benton never publicly exhibited the spinners. Perhaps the juxtaposition with the slaves would have suggested that these women were spinning cotton, the pro product of slave labor. This could have insidiously signaled a complicit interconnectedness of spinning and women's work to slavery. The assumptions embedded in these connections could have implied women's work as a destructive foundation like slavery of the American economy, just as women were sometimes beginning to enter the workforce. In addition, another staunchly sexist blow could have been leveled at women who were leaders in the antebellum abolitionist movement had the cruel and inhumane panel of the slaves been unmistakably framed by spinners, witches, and religious matriarchs. Why else didn't Benton exhibit this panel of colonial women? <laughs> the wall, windowsill, and wooden grade of window panes indicate that it would have been anomalous as the only indoor scene in the entire series as he was envisioning it. In association with colonial revival imagery, it might have appeared as a merely descriptive and unimportant womanly interlude between the more wrenching and masculine adjacent panels, planting, and the slaves or the contrast between the industrious white colonial women and the naked black slave women, the uppermost figure with her breast swaying, may simply have been too odious for contemporary audiences. I believe Benton could not determine what message the spinners, and by extension women, would send in the series. It is more than likely the domestic and feminine historical experience like this one sent the wrong one. It would not have measured up against the masculine public saga dramatically and aggressively enacted outdoors as Euro-American men exploited Indians and enslaved blacks to settle America's primal wilderness. After he, not surprisingly, abandoned the epic for lack of a building or patronage, Benton completed one other painting around 1928 of historical women in a final effort to draw connections between the colonial and modern eras in America. The subject of brideship or colonial brides, now in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts, was the brokering in 1620-21 to 21 of English maidens to the men of colonial Jamestown. These women were vulnerable widows, orphans, and youngest daughters who had few other options. Investors underwrote their transatlantic passage, wardrobe, and trousseau. When they arrived in Virginia, prospective husbands were able to purchase the brides in exchange for 150 pounds of tobacco. Brokering and selling brides was not exactly the sort of American historical subject that the popular colonial revival movement sought to revive, <laughs> an angle which certainly attracted Benton to these historical incidents. To debunk national myths, he freely selected events from the national past for his revisionist version of it, gravitating towards those that called to mind its unheroic, shameful episodes. This tendency made Benton's epic and related images like brideship incoherent, even impotent, for most contemporary audiences who couldn't fully appreciate Benton's critical histories. The kinds of historical women and associations Benton tried to draw between past and present in the epic missed the mark for the public. Even though, the public was even though Benton was willing to provoke his viewers, he also wanted desperately to connect with as broad an audience as possible. What kinds of images of women would be more appealing than his invented expressions of historical American women? Who were the authentic women of Benton's America? 
First of all, there were women like Rita Piacenza, Benton's wife, who gave birth to their son, Thomas Piacenza, or TP, in 1926. Despite or because of his new fatherhood, Benton traveled extensively during the mid-1920s and through the early 1930s. He admitted the bonds of marriage did not lay too heavily on my back, although he was faithful for all intents and purposes that we know of and stayed married until the day he died. Benton had an irrepressible desire to explore America. He recorded in his 1937 autobiography, I started going places and I left the main traveled roads, the highways, and plowed around in the back counties of our country where old manners persisted and old prejudices were sustained. I traveled without interest beyond those of getting material for my pictures. I didn't give a damn what people thought, how they ate their eggs or approached their females, how they voted or what devious business they were involved in. I took them as they came and I got along with them as best I could. Benton scouted and prolifically sketched the country's regions and its appropriate and its representative characters and settings. They began to appear in his paintings and murals, whether city girls, holy rollers, cotton pickers, or aspiring starlets. Benton's artistic stagecraft reveals the allure of modern mythmaking and of casting individuals as characters in authentic American stories. America Today, Benton's mural cycle for the New School for Social Research was his first major mural commission and the first of his murals to deploy female characters he encountered not so much in his travels around rural America, but right at home in New York. Dancers, circus performers, moviegoers, flappers, and of course, his wife Rita. And if you look in the uh, lower right corner, the woman in the red dress holding the child is, is Rita and their son, T.P. City activities with subway calls attention more overtly to New York's underground, as well as to male desire for the female body and the looser sexual mores of the Roaring Twenties. Benton emphasized female forms and poses and included performers like burlesque dancers and strippers. The famous stripper Peggy Reynolds even posed for the standing subway rider in the red hat. Below her is Benton's friend, the leftist writer Max, Eatman, Max Eastman, who is shown not offering his seat and trying not to ogle this stunning strap hanger. <laughs> a painting from 1930, burlesque, filled with overweight middle-aged men and a dancing stripper, also highlights male desire in the objectified women of the urban male playground. In this small work, once owned by Ira Gershwin and now in the collection of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, Benton somewhat humorously exposes male fantasies in the locales where they were indulged. Outside the zone of the modern metropolis, Benton looked to the figures that could convey original folkways, such as the experiences of black and white Americans pictured in his Arts of the Life America mural series for the Whitney. And here I show you one panel, Arts of the South. These murals embraced what Benton called in a 1932 essay, the undisciplined, uncritical, or popular arts. For Benton, undisciplined, uncritical, popular expressions of American culture included radically different kinds of performances involving women. Prime among these were the evangelical revival meetings and minstrel shows that Benton saw in the early 1930s. Benton wrote about these specific experiences in the mountains of West Virginia in his autobiography. He cited, uh, for instance, quote, the particular brand of ecstatic religion popularly known as the holy roller faith, which has been sweeping the South for the last 15 years and which is such a wild mixture of sex, exhibitionism, and hysteria. And described in prose the nature of this titillation, which he chose not to convey in his far more tame canvas. 
The girl lay on the ground, her hips rising and falling in the semblance of orgiastic spasm. She twitched, her breast quivers, her breath came fast. Spit rolled down the chins of the men about her as they cried out, Holy be his name, blessed be the will of God, and shook the treetops with their resonant amens. The minstrel show saw that he saw he described differently as a rotten affair, an exaggerated man, musical pantomime of suspicious fear. He wrote, Three Negro boys and two girls, poor adventurous mummers who had learned the sad tricks of their trade from medicine shows and carnivals of the South, recited stale jokes about old maids and sang corny jazz songs. Spasmodic injections of reality moved the audience to high glee. Benton wanted to portray all of America as he saw it, not shying from the scenes and the people that most artists, and especially white artists, avoided. This is romance. But white artists also rarely imagined painting, a, painting an image like romance in which an African-American couple strolls by southern moonlight beneath Spanish moss. This canvas, once owned by master storyteller James Mishner and now in the Blanton Museum at University of Texas, solemnly paid homage to relatively positive images of the South while gently challenging mainstream notions of romance in storybooks or on movie screens. Some subjects avoided Benton, especially women. He reported, it will be noticed that my travels around the back roads of America have produced few drawings of women. Women are extremely touchy about being regarded as old-fashioned or outmoded, and unless they are highly convinced of their style or beauty or up-to-dateness, they cannot be induced to sit the 10 or 15 minutes it takes to make a drawing. No matter where I have been in America, how far off the lines of regular travel, the popular monthlies of style and chic have preceded me. The women of the backwoods are perfectly aware that they do not appear like the illustrations of the magazines, and they are convinced, therefore, that you intend to ridicule when you ask for permission to make a sketch of them. The most well-considered and careful flattery is of no avail in the matter. The minute I get out my pencil, women flee. <laughs> Benton found a way to interpret the rural white women that he encountered, as well as the black cotton pickers and sharecroppers. The latter became the artist's more direct and authentic responses to contemporary American womanhood than many of his more mythologizing and sexualized images of white women. In fact, Benton was the first prominent modern American artist to tackle the subject of cotton picking since the 19th century. In paintings like Cotton Pickers, Georgia from 1927, and the panel Deep South from America Today, Benton paid close attention to the black female labor, even though they are in the background of these scenes. They similarly figure in King Vidor's Talkie from 1929, Hallelujah, which featured an all-black cast. <laughs> film and in American culture and in a painting like Benton's Wayne Cotton from 1939, the black woman remains a steady and vital presence in the field. In 1945, Benton painted his final meditation on King Cotton, 
Cotton Pickers, a recent acquisition by the Art Institute of Chicago. It is his most profound expression of the subject and a culmination of his interpretations of the rural South begun in 1927. And they find important precedent in American art history in Winslow Homer's Cotton Pickers, painted in the nation's centennial year of 1876. Like Benton's drawings and paintings would be, Homer's scene was based on firsthand observations. Homer expressed the enormity of slavery's legacy through the vast cotton fields to be picked that extend around these former slaves. The apron of the figure on the right is symbolically caught on a cotton plant branch. He conveyed a reverence for their fortitude and sacrifices by elevating the two beautiful and strong female subjects above the cotton fields in a monumental and heroic manner. Benton's treatment of a woman offering water to a kneeling cotton picker is similarly elegiac and steeped in the grandest art historical traditions. The painting has a harmoniously arranged and classically ordered composition combining still life, figure, and landscape painting. Benton selectively used a bright red to draw the eye to key parts of the scene, a classic compositional and narrative technique employed by painters throughout art history, as well as Hollywood. The color is noticeably technicolor red. It appears in the field of vision with the technicolor pale blue of the sky, a typical palette used throughout this period in Hollywood movies. Benton chose a woman as, as the protagonist of the scene and dressed her in a long red skirt with clean white shirt and shoes. She centers the composition in this familial group of cotton pickers. She stands tall at the intersection of a diagonal stretching from the top right to lower left corner and another diagonal from the top left to lower right corner. Through these diagonals, she connects on one side, the wagon piled high with cotton being pulled by a mule and a large still life of a thriving cotton plant. On the other side, she is the link between the traditional cabin home and the unclosed baby lying on the same technicolor red blanket next to, not in, as stereotypical postcards typically showed, a full basket of fluffy cotton. I'm oh, sorry, you can't see the whole thing there. There. Let's see. Oh, it's a detail. Sorry. You can see it there. The these three foreground areas of red and the stalk of the cotton plant, the woman's skirt, and the baby's blanket create a triangular grouping linking multi-generational experiences and legacies of cotton picking. The water giver's head is elevated above the gently undulating landscape and a frieze of fellow workers whose rhythmic line and movements echo the contours of the field. She possesses an obvious stoicism despite the weariness evident in her lanky body. Her eyes are closed or directed downward and she holds steady the cup of water for the thirsty cotton picker at the edge of the field on his knees. His thirst, her gesture, the hats on all the heads shading faces, and the makeshift lean to protecting the naked baby from the sun all communicate the intense heat of the cotton belt climate and the conditions workers endure to pick cotton. In this painting, Benton surpassed the quotidian character of most of his cotton picker scenes, the sophisticated, formal, even cinematic underpinnings of his composition, and the deliberate emphasis on the palpable humanity of the physical experiences, actions, and labor of the figures in this woman represent what cultural critic Lewis Mumford had once called a mature form of Americana. On this canvas, the figures function as symbolic cotton pickers honored for historic sacrifices and contributions to the nation. Benton artistically elevated a humble scene of cotton pickers to the traditionally venerated realm of history painting, a lifelong impulse revealed in the artist's finest work.
Benson's movie mural, Hollywood, painted in 1937-38, falls into the categories of Benton's finest work and history painting. At four and a half by six feet, Hollywood is Benton's interpretation of the state of Hollywood and also signals his turn to white American women as a fount for his new approach to modern myth-making, Americanizing biblical or classical themes and characters. But it was a commission from Life magazine to paint this movie mural about making feature films that lured Benton to Hollywood in August 1937. Although he was a celebrity artist, it was his first visit to Tinseltown. Benton spent much of his month-long assignment on the lots at 20th Century Fox Studios, the big-budget musical about Chicago's Great Fire of 1871 in Old Chicago was in production, and Benton referenced the movie Showgirl in the Center and the spectacular special effects with fire and water from the movie's climactic last scene in the painting. You can see that in the background on the right. What becomes evident in studying Benton's Hollywood material is how dedicated Benton was to his belief that ordinary people played just as vital a role in the making of history and myths as historical figures or movie stars. In his version of Hollywood, a burlesque queen becomes an American goddess, while the film industry's workers and extras orchestrate the daily production of a mythic America around her. Technicolor had been introduced in 1934 with the hit movie Becky Sharp, but the vast majority of Hollywood productions remained in black and white. Benton's vividly colored composition, in which all the women are platinum blondes except for the lone brunette hairdresser at the lighted mirrors, outdoes the black and white norms. As historian, film historian Tom Stemple has pointed out, the painting seems to combine simultaneously in one field of vision as many scenes and extras as a Cecil B. DeMille extravaganza. <laughs> Benton especially called attention to his rivalry between the movies and paintings through the conspicuousness of the scantily clad goddess at the heart of the painting, as well as his portrayal of an actress's bare breast and nipple at the very bottom of the canvas. This level of exposure went far beyond anything the major studios could have dreamed of showing on the big screen during the era of the Motion Picture Production Code, also known as the Hayes Code. The motion picture industry established the code in 1930 to ban excessive depictions of sex and drinking in the movies, and the studios started strictly enforcing it around 1934. Benton alluded to the ridiculousness of it all in a letter to the life editor who arranged his Hollywood assignment, a letter discovered by Benton scholar Erica Doss. Benton wrote to Daniel Longwell, quote, the young lady who occupies the center of the panel is more a symbolical than an actual movie figure. I wanted to give the idea that the machinery of the industry, cameras, carpenters, big generators, high voltage wires, et cetera, is directed mainly toward what young ladies have under their clothes. So I took the clothes off, but I added a few little bits for the post office. I hope you like the picture. I do. <laughs> so I want to show a clip from the movie stand, and the audio is a little bit hard to hear, but you still get a great sense of the behind the scenes. Uh, this movie was released in 1937, the year Benton was in Hollywood, and it offers really humorous and telling points of comparison between Benton's imagery, the role of big money, special effects, and women in Hollywood. All right, we can go in now. Now hit her on the back of the head with that spot. Hey, make it snappy, will you kill his arm roasting? Shut that globe away there, put a jelly on the 18. Good. Now move that broad in closer to plumb. First position. 
Bring up that baby and break its neck. Kill the junior. Second position. Fancy old socks. I'm glad to see you. Come here. Come here. I want to get a picture of you. For publicity, you understand? All right, here you are now. Just point to the name. Understand? Get it. Okay. Why should I point to these? On that? Tell. Great, great. Because the banker finds now in the snow bank. Get it? Banker? Snow bank? <laughs> Come on, kid. Now let's see the blizzard. I can't hardly watch this sweater. <laughs> Only we can turn it off like the machines. <laughs> you seen enough? Quite. Well, come along, I'll have you meet Miss Sherry. It's a great club. <laughs> so, during his month in Los Angeles, Benton's VIP status allowed him to deserve just such the culture, mechanics, and politics of the motion picture industry. He also produced more than 400 graphite sketches that he called notes, which resulted in 40 finished ink and wash drawings recording that so-called machinery of the industry. In addition to wind machines, smoke-filled executive offices, the beams of Klieg lights, boom microphones, and camera cranes, Benton turned his extraordinary and often wry powers of observation on the women of Hollywood. And here you see the central importance of the pretty girl and good old romance on the screen is made clear in projection room and also in dubbing and music. As Sarah Chassie has identified, Benton shows the stars of In Old Chicago, Alice Faye and Tyrone Power on the screen above the orchestra recording the score pictured in the scene reproduced on the movie poster. His drawing, Member of the Chorus, is made even more poignant when juxtaposed with an image of society photographer Jerome Zerb surprising a Hollywood star at her dressing table. Zerby worked for, as he was known, Zerby worked for Life and Look, and Benton frequently tagged along with him. He also appears hard at work in the background of Thursday Night and the Cock and Bull, or Maid's Night Out. There, as Janet Bleiberg has identified, is Betty Davis sitting nonchalantly in the front um, in the corner of this famous Hollywood restaurant with cigarette in hand, her male partner tantalizing out of view, uh, avoiding Zerby's flash for the moment. Ironically, Life magazine never published the story or the images they assigned Benton to create. Apparently, they didn't focus enough on the conventional glitz and glam of the movies for the magazine's readers. Following this turn of events, Benton took the mythic themes he gravita gravitated to in other directions. In 1939, the year his daughter Jessie was born, Benton produced the monumental painting Persephone. It is seven feet tall and four and a half feet wide and uh, is at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art in Kansas City. Persephone represents Benton's ongoing efforts to reinterpret myth in American vernacular terms. His sensuous Persephone, the goddess personifying spring and rebirth, appears in a Midwestern landscape in the pose of a classic pinup, the likes of which the old man behind the tree would have enjoyed. Benton had developed an expert ability to audaciously combine high art and popular culture in his work, and he didn't shy from sexy sensationalism, which this painting attracted plenty of. Benton even went so far as to propose that his paintings would look better in bars than art museums. 
Sure enough, Billy Rose, an impresario and art collector, heeded the call and arranged for Persephone to hang for a month at his Diamond Horseshoe nightclub in New York City. Their real showgirls vied with this gorgeous Midwestern goddess, symbolizing the creative power of Benton's art specifically, and the spectrum of American art and American culture more broadly. Benton saw mythic underpinnings in everyday life in America and embraced myth and myth-making in relation to themes of creation and national identity, particularly in his most important paintings, including women from the 1930s and 40s. And in my opinion, these are Susanna and the Elders from 1938, Amiral, Eschylus, and Hercules from 1947, and Poker Night from A Streetcar Named Desire in 1948. This is Susanna and the Elders. He chose to express the themes of lechery and voyeurism and bearing false witness against the virtuous in his Americanized version of the biblical story. To drive the points home, Susanna does not appear as an idealized nude, but as a girl next door with all her clothes off, a resolutely naked American redhead. In Aeschylus and Hercules, this is a 22-foot-long mural originally commissioned by Hartsfeld's department store in Kansas City and now in the Smithsonian American Art Museum. As the story goes, Aeschylus, the god of the rivers, took the form of an angry bull and tore waterways through the earth with his horns. Hercules defeated Aeschylus by tearing off one horn, which became nature's cornucopia. And Benton imagined the story set in the Midwest. The mythological Midwestern women in red and blue occupy the highest figural positions in the painting, rejoicing over the horn of plenty made possible by American farmers in the American heartland. Poker Night is a dramatic depiction of a scene from Tennessee Williams' instant contemporary classic, A Streetcar Named Desire, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1947. The dramatic tensions composed of clashes between American types and settings, like a working-class Polish-American Southern Bells and a sultry and seedy Big Easy, play out on Benton's canvas. Hollywood producer David O. Selznick commissioned Benton to create the painting as a gift for his first wife, Irene, producer of the 1949 Broadway production and daughter of Louis B. Mayer. Benton chose to emphasize the sexual tension between Southern Belle Blanche Dubois looking in the mirror and her sister Stella, who's leaning over the armchair husband, the coarse Stanley Kowalski, played by Marlon Brando wearing the infamous wife beater white undershirt. Jessica Tandy, the actress who played Blanche in the original production, felt Benton's sexually provocative interpretation of Blanche was inappropriate to the staging of the play and to the character herself. The sheer and clingy blue strip dress that reveals her curvaceous hips, breasts, and nipples was not exactly in line with the kind of dainty southern day dresses and hats imagined for this southern lady who looked down on her working-class brother-in-law yet caught his violent sexual attention. But Benton, a male artist, of course, didn't hesitate to take Stanley's perspective as the viewer's. Benton easily could have imagined how Stanley could have imagined looking right through whatever Blanche may really have had on to conjure the sensuous beauty beneath the clothes of this woman who desired but was only gazing at herself in her mirror. That Benton chose to depict Stanley's fantasies and Blanche is projecting some kind of sexual power speaks to tensions, sexual, cultural, and political, that Benton was always comfortable picturing in his art throughout his career, not surprisingly, in images of women. However... When it came to paintings of Benton's daughter, Jessie, these tensions and preoccupations melt away. Benton was 50 when Jessie was born. 
These family photos show the contented life and perceptional success that Benton had achieved in midlife when he started a tradition of giving his daughter a painting every year on her July birthday. Jesse with guitar, made in 1956 when Jesse turned 17, is especially wonderful. Here, Jesse is also transformed into a kind of goddess, but not at all like the others Benton painted. She's more like a goddess of American girlhood. Here is his beautiful daughter on the cusp of womanhood, already an accomplished guitarist, towering above a Martha's Vineyard summer landscape, her young head framed by the bright sky. By way of conclusion tonight, I want to share Jesse Benton's own thoughts on women and her father's art. Here's what she said came to her mind when we corresponded recently about the subject. Women were a mystery to my father. He didn't quite believe in the conservative idea of women as lesser beings, having had an exceptionally strong and intelligent wife. He was attracted to women who could stand on their own two feet and compete in a man's world, especially if they were also beautiful. He was always a champion for the downtrodden, and that was true of the women he knew on the farms across America, who worked as hard as the men and longer hours. His women friends were all innovative, creative, well-bred, in general, unusual people, never about money, just intellect and talent. That is not true of his men friends. Thank you.